fill her up with console fuel because it's time to launch in five, four, three, two. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we're talking about console launches, what makes a good one, what makes a bad one, and what to make of the most recent ones. All that plus an archaeological guest and one more thing, so stick around. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Schreier. Hey! We are back! Hey! Welcome to the show. <laughs> uh, we're so glad that you're here. And if you are a Maximum Fun member and you're supporting the creation of this show, we are extra glad that you're here and we're extra grateful for you. Thank you so much to all of the members who support the creation of this show. We are a totally listener-supported show. You may not know that. You probably do if you listen to us, but you might not know <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, maybe you do. And, now you uh, do. Now you know that. <laughs> what that means is that we own this show. We uh, we put it out through Maximum Fun. They're really great and they, uh, they're really really cool network but this is our show we make it no one tells us what to do we don't sell ads we don't do any of that nonsense we are funded entirely by you the listener it's just you and the three of us kind of kind of wonderful when you think about it if you would like to be a part of that project go to maximumfund.org slash join and you can become a member and you get access to our bonus beans casts we just put up a new one about mel brooks movies we're going to be doing a video game in december which is cool we'll announce that maybe next week and uh, of course all of the beans casts that we've done in past months plus all kinds of other bonus content from other maximum fund shows and you just get to support what we're doing here and be, be a part of that which is very cool so by all means go to maximum fund part of the cool kids club.org slash join <laughs> and uh, join the cool kids club it's the place to be yeah so hey so before we get started i just want to say first of all we have the smartest listeners in the world so shout out to our <laughs> we listeners we really do shout out <laughs> to them so a few weeks ago as many of you enjoyed uh we heard from an engineer who was telling us a little bit about how the ps5 controllers haptic feedback vibration works which is really cool and we got a lot of positive reactions to that and coincidentally just last week, we got an email from someone who, in response to our Assassin's Creed Valhalla episode, who said, hey, I'm an archaeologist, and it turns out that I work in East Anglia and dig up Saxons and Vikings and know some things about that stuff. So I got on the phone with him, and why don't we play our little chat? Hello, so I'm, I'm John House, and I'm an archaeologist who works in the UK, uh, specifically uh, East Anglia in uh, in England, so somewhat uh, the front line, I suppose, of uh, Viking incursions into Britain in, in many respects. And do you specialize? Do you specialize specifically in Vikings in your work? Um, I don't. The way archaeology works in this country, we we kind of have to be a jack of all trades and master of none. So um, I end up sort of studying every period, if you like. Uh, but uh, over my sort of. 20 years digging, I have encountered them a lot in different ways, although they're very hard to find. <laughs> Are they? I, I mean, I imagine. Yes, archaeologically, they're, they're really difficult to find, actually. Yeah, they're quite in, in, almost invisible in the archaeological record in many ways. Is that is the Viking period more difficult than other historical periods? Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is sort of technically the Dark Ages, as right. people refer to it. And, uh, and of course, we... Um, we're reliant solely on archaeology in terms of the Vikings themselves because they they didn't really write too much down. But yeah, as a, as a people, they they tended to sort of mold into their surroundings quite quickly, hmm. seemingly. 
Yes, um, and we can see that in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, actually, um, which you said you haven't played. No, I haven't played it, actually. No, I think I've heard previous podcasts of yours which suggest uh, waiting on games until all the bugs are fixed and mm. the price is a bit cheaper, and <laughs> I think that's very sensible advice, so I'm going to follow. Good advice, especially with this one, which is one of the buggiest games that I, I, have, I have heard. Yeah, played. it's very buggy. So the reason you reached out, John, is because you wanted to tell us a little bit about the reality of Vikings as opposed to the way they're portrayed in video games and TV and movies and such. So what is kind of the biggest misconception that we all have about Vikings? So one of the most sort of obvious and striking ones is how, how violent they are. So we, we know they are they are violent and they did raise armies and we know they did do raiding, but I, I think it's probably uh, a little bit sort of overblown in terms of how much they did. I, actually, culturally, they're very sophisticated and, you know, they're master craftsmen, uh, traders, um Although sometimes in slaves, as uh, as we mm. we learn, um, but they, you know, also really explorers, really. So, um, so actually, many of their sort of best traits um, aren't violent in any way, really. So, huh. I mean, they, they, yeah. their exploration stretches from Iran to to Canada, even on your continent. So. And so so the image that we all have is that they're exploring so they can go find treasure and bring it home or go and like build their own kingdoms. Is that not what actually happened? So they do they do raid and they do they do look to seek to get money that way, but they are also interested in just settling. So in, in many places they do just settle down and become farmers and, and try and live their lives really. And that, that seems to be something we see um, born out, and that and that's probably why they're so culturally rich within in in our own culture, in, hmm. in British culture. You see, um, we get a lot of place names um, from them, and a lot of our our language is uh, integrated into our language, and that's not through violence. I think that's through them settling in amongst and and blending in with the uh, overall crowd. So the image of Vikings and Saxons and Britons all constantly at war might not quite be what actually happens. Uh, yeah, I think. I th- the, the, it does go on, as I say, and uh, we do have some good evidence for it occasionally. Uh, I mean, the, the the part that sort of is slightly misleading is um, obviously the Saxons did write things down. So they did mm. write historic counts and they had a vested interest in portraying the Vikings in as poor a light as possible. So they certainly made the most of what Vikings did do in terms of their misdemeanors. But, um, but yeah, the reality may differ slightly. Huh. Uh, and we know that the Saxons were quite violent themselves. And, um, yeah, they certainly could hold their own. Uh, there's, a, there's a good example near a, a town called Weymouth on the south coast of, um, of England, where there's probably a Viking raiding party that's been brutally murdered and massacred. Um, so there's a, there was a, about 50 heads found in a pit and uh, lots of dismembered <laughs> bodies as well. Wow. And that, they, they were proven to be from Scandinavia. So they, it seems like the uh, Saxons here may have sort of dealt with a small raiding party in that way. Huh. Yeah. yeah, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought. Of course, history is always written by written by the winners. But yeah, the Saxons. Uh, most of our history of that area is from the Saxons' perspective, huh? It almost entirely. Yeah, and it's a good old-fashioned Saxon propaganda. They <laughs> wanted to kind of look down upon people that weren't following the Christian faith, and uh-huh. so therefore they they made sure they doubled down on making sure they uh, besmirched their name. If you see. Huh. But what we don't see in the archaeological record is uh, I've dug many villages across East Anglia, and, and what we don't find in the cemeteries is brutally murdered women and children. I, I think I saw some a critic complaining that when you, you desynchronize in the game because you kill a civilian, and um, and he sort of complained, well, I'm a Viking, I can kill whoever I like, surely. They would have just done that. But actually, we don't really see that in the archaeological record. They don't huh. seem to be massacring people. It, I think they go and take money and intimidate them, but... 
But actually, it's, it's sort of counterproductive to just murder people sort of as you like, because you want to go back next year and take money from them again or food to keep. If you're a professional warrior, you, you're obviously not growing your own food. So you rely on taking from the, um, the local peasants to huh. keep yourself fed. So is our conception of Vikings as these bearded, like constant marauders holding two axes, just raiding everything they see? Is that from Saxon literature? Is there is there depictions of that in Saxon literature? Yeah, they cer- they certainly do um, uh, try and make the most of any events like that. When they, they first raid the um, Lindisfarne Priory in the north of England, one of the early sort of what regarded as one of the first sort of Viking incursions into England. Um, yeah, they certainly make a big deal about that. But but that, again, whether these are quite rare incidences and they, they jump on it and really make a big deal about it, um, or whether they they actually were more widespread. But what we, we don't really see it, again, in the archaeological record. I don't find cemeteries with mug monks who have all been sort of chopped into small pieces or show a lot of battle scars on their on their skeletons, which we can see. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, it seems it doesn't seem to be quite, um, yeah, portrayed as it is. Huh. So, okay, um, one last question, which is that you uh, mentioned that you have found an exciting archaeological find for yourself from this time. Yes, so I, I, I did once find a Saxon warrior who was um, actually buried on a shield. We could see by the position of the shield boss, so they had these round shields with a sort of circular iron piece in the middle. Um, and uh, that that sort of circular iron piece, which was the pit that survived, that was um, upturned next to his head. So it seems like the uh, the actual warrior was buried lying on his shield wow. in the grave. And uh, we had certain other grave goods in there as well. He had his um, spear. The one kind of thing that didn't show up, which we, we didn't find a sword, which we often don't, actually. We do wonder if not many people actually did carry swords. But hmm. It might have been more of a, a rare item for your, for your really elite warrior. But although he may have even passed it on to a, a, a descendant or something, or possibly an heir. How did you find the grave? So that was in it was in a pub car park actually. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was being uh, built on. There was a house being built on the um, on the former pub gardens and car park, and um, yeah, we were working through and we found a number of skeletons. Actually, we found some females as well that were um, had some very interesting grave goods on them, so beaded necklaces and. Uh, and uh, some other sort of curious items, possibly um, sort of things they may have considered sacred or, or even a little bit magical or something like that. So, huh. so yeah, we had some very interesting graves. But. Well, how did you know to excavate in that specific parking lot? So it had been previously found before. Um, and so we, we had an inkling there might be some there. So we went in sort of with the assumption that we might be finding uh, bits like that. And, and sure enough. We, uh, we found even more sort of graves. And there'll be many more, actually. There's many yeah. residents with, uh, with people buried underneath their houses with wow. lots of probably gold items and things like that, probably <laughs> below their floors, effectively. It's wild to think about how much history is just literally underneath us at all times. Um, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really quite fascinating. And hey, the more we know about Vikings, the, the better. <laughs> yes, yeah. Hopefully I'll continue to learn and uh, find out a bit more as we go. I'm imagining that all archaeologists wear fedoras and have bullwhips while they talk. So that's how I was picturing that yes. conversation. Yes. That was very yeah, cool. That was very cool. That's how it went yes. down. There was a map and there was like a mm-hmm. line going across the yes. map. <laughs> yes. yes, from the uh, beginning to the uh, end of the conversation. And all terrified of snakes. <laughs> yes, yep. of course, naturally. That's just part of it. Here's the expertise. That was very cool. So um, speaking of history, 
and uh, and expertise. <laughs> sure. On this episode, we are going to be doing another What's the Deal With? And on this episode, in uh, in honor of the launch of the new ninth generation of video game consoles, we are going to be talking about what's the deal with console launches. So that is our topic. What's the deal with console launches? What are they, rocket ships? <laughs> what do they think, they're going to space? Where are they going? Where are you going, console? Why are you Where launching? Where you got to be? So uh, yeah, consoles have been launching for a very long time, I think... Going by the sort of Wikipedia and agreed upon generation breakdown, we are in the ninth generation of consoles, and then that's too many. That's too it's a lot. Over. It's a lot, especially given that the Nintendo generation is like Gen three, which is the first one that I think a lot of people really kind of uh-huh. think of. Uh-huh. At least people who are below are like my age or below. <laughs> so there are some people, <laughs> and who are those are the only people who matter in this conversation. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't want to. Don't want to exclude anyone. Pe- this is for people our age only who understand that the NES is the first. Console we have it to was the first video game console ever. <laughs> so I, I want to kind of try to really get at the answer to that question. What is the deal with console launches? What makes a good console launch? And uh, what are some notable console launches throughout the ages? We are, of course, going to be talking from our own personal experience, m- most mostly. Like, we're not going to just it's go the through we know. <laughs> the very first console launch of all time or anything. So I'm curious to maybe start with a question. Maybe, Maddie, I'll throw this to you. Uh, what was the first console that you bought at launch? Okay, I believe this was actually the Nintendo Wii, which is a surprisingly late answer. But my slightly modified answer is probably the GameCube, because although that was technically Mm. a Christmas present, it was still pretty soon after the launch. And so it felt very exciting and special back in 2001 to get that for Christmas after it having launched in the fall. Yeah, I guess that counts if it like... Right, like a fall launch and a Christmas yeah, like holiday yeah. gift kind of a deal. That, that counts yeah, as was, a launch console. It was very, very special to me. Um, Jason, what was the first console that you bought or received as a gift at launch? So the first <laughs> launch console that I remember getting was the PlayStation 2. And mm-hmm. I remember it very vividly because I was a big fan of the PlayStation 1 and like all the JRPGs you could play on it. I was one of those who like played Nintendo at first and then switched to PlayStation because Final Fantasy moved mm-hmm. over there, which like drove mm-hmm. all the RPGs to come. And so I was really excited for the PS2. Really surprised to hear that was your journey. Yeah, no, I can't <laughs> yeah. believe this. Wouldn't have guessed. Um, <laughs> totally new information. And so I was really excited for the PS2 and then it came out and it had like all these atrocious launch games. I remember yeah. sitting there and I was so excited for this like brand new console and then I get like Evergrace and Eternal Ring these two like it's, shitty it has RPGs. so many games like for our own document that we're using to keep track of it the launch games for the PS2 is just blank because I like looked at the list of launch games and I was like none of these matter and there's like no, 18 no. 20 like there's so no. many launch games and all of them I was like oh that was a swing and a miss eh all right uh, that's pretty funny should have gotten a GameCube honestly yeah well the, the early 2000s year. were we're just like this is the era this is the era of um of filler filler games and the ps2 mm-hmm. just launched a lot of this tons and tons of filler and there was more filler to come but like the real gems didn't start coming until a few months later a year later and then i remember getting final fantasy 10 and being like okay finally there's stuff to play on this thing so yeah. the first console that I bought at launch was the wii u <laughs> so Ooh, it was wow. way later because wow. Because you're a PC gamer. <laughs> I really was when I grew up, and I've said this many times on the show, but my parents didn't let me have game consoles growing up, so getting one at launch was out of the question. And I bought myself an Xbox in college, but that was way after launch. It was like a year or two after the console had been out, or maybe a year. 
And so I, it wasn't until the Wii U where I pre-ordered a Wii U, which is pretty funny considering that that was like wound up being this sort of failed console in a lot of ways. But I remember buying it and then being like, well, why did I buy this <laughs> a year later and really regretting it? <laughs> but at this it. point in your life, yeah. you were working for Kotaku, so buying it yes, was yes. a worthy... It was a very different circumstance than what you uh-huh. two are describing. I mm-hmm. think, so I've been kind of looking through the history and trying to place what these launches must have been like. And I'm really interested in hearing what those kind of turn of the century 2000, 2001 launches were like, because mm-hmm. when I looked all the way back, you know, the Nintendo, the Game Boy, even the Super Nintendo, those consoles launched in Japan and then launched in North America, in the West where mm-hmm. we all live. And it was a much more kind of staggered thing. There'd be some early cop, like some early units available, but there wasn't like a big launch until it kind of looks like the N64 was one of the very early ones where it was like, this is coming out and they delayed it a bunch of times and people were so excited for it to come out. So it kind of wasn't, I mean, that was in 96. So that was only a few years before the GameCube and the PS2, both of which launched with like a real launch and it was this new thing and it came out in the, for the holidays and I'm curious I guess Maddie what's your memory of the your sense of the GameCube when you first got one and like how many games there were and what games you could play oh boy I was so excited about Super Smash Bros. Melee which is kind of a cheat answer as well because that technically wasn't a launch title but mm-hmm. I also got that at Christmas and that just launch window, that is I guess. such an extreme strong memory for me but also Super Monkey Ball is like a great launch game for the mm-hmm. GameCube, like genuinely an amazing launch game. And when people ask me about good launch games, I say that one and it's not a joke answer. But mostly I remember that being an important signing on point for me in my gamer identity for lack of a less corny way of putting it. Like up <laughs> up, and up before getting a GameCube essentially at launch, I was very much like playing consoles at other friends' houses, didn't really see myself as a gamer. I feel like this is how a lot of women... My in my age group grew up and and felt I had a Game Boy. I played some games on PC, but I wasn't really like tapped into a lot of these things, even though I was playing games at friends' houses and so on and so forth. And so, like getting the GameCube in two thousand one was like this is it. Like I'm committing to this. I'm getting this thing at launch because I've decided I really give a shit about this. And now I'm tapped in to video games. And like from then on, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to like have consoles and PC games and like try to actually keep up with this Mm. bizarre lifestyle choice. So it was like exciting for multiple reasons, but I don't know if that's because the GameCube was a good console or just because of the period of time in my life or maybe a combination. Like I got kind of lucky. There were some good games on there, even at launch. Yeah. Those are good launch games. I mean, like Luigi's Mansion was also on there at launch. Yes, that's right. Oh man. Wow. Because yeah. And I think that, I mean, everyone talks about uh, Super Mario 64 as the greatest, like the original great launch game. And I think one of the reasons Nintendo said that they delayed the N64 was because the software wasn't there yet and they wanted to have it there. And when it launched with that game, I mean, I remember as a kid going over to my friend's house and seeing Mario 64 and I feel I still think of that as the quintessential launch game. Maybe we'll talk about what makes a great launch game in a little bit. Mario World also came with the Super Nintendo. Like you, mm-hmm. And that was a launch packet. That's true, but I really think of 64, but I think of Mario 64 as the quintessential launch game. It's funny. I kind of don't because I actually, my my example would be Soul Calibur on the Sega Dreamcast in 99 because I didn't have that at launch, but I had a friend who did. And that Soul Calibur was such a good game. Like, <laughs> not to say the Dreamcast wasn't good, but like that launch game was such yeah. a cut above the other launch games, in my opinion, and such a like. A cut above. Rev- 
evolution for fighting games, as it were. And like, it's still so good. Like, I still have mm. a literal Dreamcast and Soul Calibur on it, and I'll like <laughs> still play it sometimes because I think the original Soul Calibur is just that good. So to me, that's a really, really strong memory. But that might also be because I had a lot of friends who played fighting games in high school. So for me, I'm like, that was the launch game I remember. But like, for you guys, maybe it's Mario. Well, you know? it's not just memorable. Like, it's not just memorability, I guess. When I'm thinking about what makes a great launch game, I feel like it needs to be a game that in some way encapsulates what makes the console different. And sure. to me, Mario 64 really does that because it's in 3D and that was the whole promise of the Nintendo 64. So it was this idea of like Mario like you've never seen before. So as great as Super Mario World is, Mario 64 is the one where, um, you know, it's just like looks completely different than any Mario game before it in the mm-hmm. way that the N64 made this promise. I don't know, Jason, am I am I right on that front? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, but I think that that was only possible because Nintendo had this precedent of like packing in these Mario games at launch mm. that were just mind-blowing and incredible. And really, if yeah, you look back in Nintendo packet. history... Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, okay, so let's go back in Nintendo history just to go through all the console launches. Would you say quick. that so, you want to zoom out? Yeah, I do what? want to zoom out. Um, I'll use the C stick on the N64 controller yeah. to zoom, <laughs> the camera. zoom the camera out. Um, so let's go in backwards order, right? So Switch, Breath of the Wild, no brainer, one of the best games ever made. Wii U had a, a kind of a mediocre launch for various reasons. Yeah, we don't reasons, talk about it. It's fine. But it also came with New Super Mario Brothers U and Zombie U and a few other like decent Zombie games. U, just yes. to really quickly call out Zombie U, I think that Zombie U does qualify as a good launch game because it used the controller so slickly. I know they made a version of it that didn't use, need the Wii U controller, but playing that game with the Wii U controller, I was like, oh, this is like a new thing, and it had that feeling of this explains to me why this console is different. But anyways, continue. Yeah. Also had a pretty good Mario game that came with it. Um, yeah. Before that was the Wii, and that came with Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Okay, um, Wii Sports, though. And Wii, Wii Sports. Sports. Yeah, and right, Wii Sports, right. which is, I have I have a Wii story that I will get to shortly. Um, but before that was GameCube, as you mentioned, Maddie, Luigi's Mansion, like Melee, like that's an incredible lineup. These are Lucky all Ball. pretty good launches. Yeah, they that's were. what I'm saying. Like Nintendo yeah. is just like above, way, way Nailing above the rest it. when it comes to launches. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, they, they're allowed to have the Wii U be like a little bit of a yeah, the one that I got the was the one with the, leak, the least exciting launch. Um, but the 3DS also a very flop of a launch lineup. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, N64, Super Nintendo, and Mario World, and then regular Nintendo. We don't actually know like what the launch lineup looked like because there's so, like, history yeah. is so spotty in the games. Yeah. But at a certain point, Nintendo started selling NES with Super Mario Brothers, the original. So that was that was obviously <laughs> a killer a good game. Killer yeah. title. <laughs> yeah. Pretty um, cool so, game. So, yeah, Nintendo video. just has this history of like of doing that of like setting the bar really high for launch lineups and then you look at the other yeah. consoles over all uh, over the years like the ps2 um I or mean, like the xbox okay. series x and the launch but the very is, first xbox had halo combat evolved which is right. like an Quite incredible launch. Yes. launch title yes 100 was introducing the idea of the twin stick shooter mm-hmm. to right. a right. huge audience and actually did evolve combat in my humble opinion <laughs> <laughs> as a person who chose a side yeah, without that i mean without that the xbox might not still be around today like that xbox yeah, needed that literally because it was, that yes. was brand yes, yeah. that was the entire reason i bought an xbox and that and and i guess we played a people. lot of fusion frenzy <laughs> which is like that was game that i don't even a pretty know pretty good game though, it is yeah really that's a game. classic game also perfect dark yeah. people were really into yes. perfect dark oh, yeah. on the xbox, they were the that was sort of more of a cult favorite if we're talking about perfect dark zero yeah that was like mm-hmm. a weird 
Like, like I don't think that was considered a success at the time. I like that game, but I, I don't actually know that it was a commercial success. Um, so let me tell you guys my favorite uh, console launch story. Okay. Um, so the Wii comes out in 2006, November 2006. And so this is like in the, the wake of a ton of rumors and like weirdness. And everyone was like, people who were Nintendo fans or even fans of consoles just watched the Wii get revealed and their heads just exploded because it's like, look at this waggly controller Wiimote thing. Like, what is going <laughs> going on here like nobody because before this was the GameCube which was a pretty traditional console like mm-hmm. Nintendo had not gotten into the gimmicks yet the, the Wii was just like just blew everyone away in both good and bad ways people made fun of the name like Wii it was called a Wii yeah. like is that like a dick or what um, uh-huh. so so cut to November I was excited for this thing because there was a new Zelda coming out on it and Zelda was one of my favorite series so mm-hmm. I decided with a couple of buddies I was at NYU at the time in 2006 I decided with a couple of buddies that we would go and wait online for the midnight launch in Times Square because they were doing this big thing and this is one of the craziest events I've ever been to this line like went all around like blocks and blocks all of Times Square Mm -hmm. Um, they later said it was 5,000 people who showed up that night Um, we got there at about 8pm women were going around it was like uh, I guess booth babes at the time yeah yeah Um, promotional models promotional models (laughs) with with like consoles and on like these mobile stations that they would take to people like the actual real consoles the actual consoles it was like demo stations like the type you would say except they were mobile and they could bring them around so so it was like one one woman was like carrying a battery (laughs) like a car battery (laughs) like you're wheeling a generator around with like she's cranking it for you so you can play (laughs) the game it's it's possible also that it was like at specific stations as you as the line progressed I don't Mm -hmm. remember 100% this was many years ago it's way cooler I like the car battery version yeah, the car, yeah sure they were generators portable generators but they were doing demos of the game so you could play like demos of the game while you were waiting in line of demos of the Wii games which is really cool yeah. um, and it was just like a party atmosphere it was really cool I remember having a lot of conversations with people it was really cold so we were all like bundled up and hanging out is this the event um, where Reggie fils went and high five people or was that like 3DS was that a little bit later I feel like I've seen um, this video of later. him going down the line I think that was later that okay. feels Reggie like a story around... about something that can't have really happened I think it no, that did. Like I, I was there yeah, I, I was there when but it feels okay. like a dream it was a 3DS that's what it was well there was a 3DS launch event that was like I was there as press and watched Reggie mm-hmm. like go around and high five but you abstained to high five to maintain your integrity ethics I, I must not. But anyway, no let me get back to this story. But can so, I have a quote, sir? So, <laughs> when's Fire Emblem coming to America? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. So I finally got my Wii, which I had pre-ordered from Best Buy at like 3.30, maybe 4 in the morning. So I take it back to my dorm, and I'm so excited. I'm like, what am I going to play first? Am I going to do some bowling? I'm like amazed you got one. I thought this was going to end with you not getting right, it. Right, but you got out. you got the console. Well, so I pre-ordered it. Like most right, people right, pre-ordered right. it beforehand. Uh, okay. So it. Uh, And it was just like standing in line just for fun, like more than right, anything, to sure, be one of the first to get it. So I took it home, so excited. I'm like, what should I play first? Should I do some bowling? maybe some tennis with my roommate maybe I'll play some Zelda and see what it's like with the weak motion controls and I load it up and it freezes 
and no. I'm like, oh my god! And it turns out I got this like defunct console at launch, and nothing was no. like more deflating than coming oh, home man. after what? waiting in line for eight hours with this defunct console. And then I took it back to Best Buy the next day, like immediately got a new one. It was fine, but wow. <laughs> it was such a bummer that night. <laughs> you had such an, e- in a way, easier experience. I could not get a Wii at launch despite waiting in line. I had not pre-ordered it, I guess, because I just didn't know I needed to. And so I went. I did multiple stores, multiple midnight waits in line with people I did not know, made friends, etc. There were no yeah, promotional yeah. models letting me play a Wii uh, on a car that. generator. <laughs> like I was just standing there in the cold trying to get a Wii. I did eventually get one and I don't even remember getting it. Like that memory is not in my mind. I remember playing the games of course, but like I just remember waiting in line at multiple stores huh. for multiple weeks trying to get one because they were in very, very high demand at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was the Wii the dawn of the like major hype, impossible to get the console for a significant period of time after launch thing with the console launch? To me, it was. I'm sure there were other consoles that mm-hmm. had that, but that's the one I remember personally as being, it was in really high demand. It was way cooler than anybody thought it was going right. to be. Like Wii Sports became a party game, which sounds so silly to say now, but like I would have oh, man, dozens yeah. and dozens of people at my apartment night after night to play yep. bowling, which is like, what? that's not no, even a anything phenomenon. compared I to the games too. we yep. can play now. But like at the time it was like the coolest shit in the world that you could like use the controller to bowl and that was it that was all the game was but it was still like that's so freaking cool like we can we can bowl in someone's apartment so So. it actually it hasn't been as much of a trend as you would think um because not a lot of until now like this generation the consoles but that's because of the pandemic and supply issues um but but most of the time i mean consoles like kind of ebb and flow and if you're really paying attention you can snag one um it's just like if you're just casually looking for one um Mm -hmm. then sometimes it's harder to find like the ps4 was hard to find for like various periods but if you were looking for one you could find it same with the switch where it was like it would go on and off like different points depending on demand it was pretty hard to get this past year yeah right the switch (laughs) still isn't that easy yeah that's true the wii was one of those exceptions where it was like sold out for months and people like they had a real supply shortage uh issues of that the wii was like the phenomenon i can't think of another console that i've ever seen become a phenomenon in the way that the Wii did and that was that was pretty that was like it came out and that was pretty immediate because I was sort of not paying super close attention at the time so it wasn't it wasn't immediate that like it became a cultural phenomenon it took Uh a little while for like Wii Fit to really take off I'm thinking like the TV news reports of like retirement homes where they're all playing Wii sports together (laughs) yeah Yeah, so the the console (laughs) came out in 2006 it didn't really become a cultural phenomenon until like 2008 and that was when the shortages happened and that was when like the nursing homes had them and right, right. like everybody seemed everybody's grandparents seemed to yeah want video games became cool in 2008 right. and everybody's it. parents wanted a Wii it's <laughs> funny that it became cool with a launch game like it wasn't a new thing that came to Wii that then drove right. it to that level it was a game that it had been packed in it just took it that long yeah. to kind of permeate into the culture but mm-hmm. I think that helped that it was a pack-in game because it was like all you had oh, to buy was just sure. the Wii and then you already had Wii Sports which was the game that everyone cared about Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i don't feel like there's a comparable example to that 
in our list here of any other console that had that no. situation. Well, the thing is, oh, there's no other console like the Wii because there's another console that needs like like a game to show off what it could do in the same right. way. Right. Um, yeah. right. There was some like the I Wii mean, U is the closest comparison, but even that isn't quite the same as the Wii, where it's like, oh, it's like a tennis racket in my hand. Like there was nothing. Mm-hmm. There's never been anything like. Well, that. it's funny to think about the Switch because. Like, 1-2-Switch is the closest thing to that for that system. But I would say that Breath of the Wild in some ways was like a launch game in that in that way. Um, because yeah. playing an epic open world game that you can play for hundreds of hours using the Switch where you can play it on your TV and then take it with you on the plane, that did wind up being a distinct and interesting experience. Jason, I remember you and I being at, at GDC together. And like sitting in our hotel room and ignoring everybody playing Breath of the Wild and talking <laughs> repeatedly about just like, this is so cool that this kind of a game can now be played on this system. So it's a little mm-hmm. bit different, but that did feel like a like a kind of a big deal as a launch. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, I, I think, might be the best launch, definitely one of the best launches ever. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in terms of like sales momentum and critical acclaim, it was like, like when the Switch came out, it was apparent right away that this thing was like, Nintendo finally knocked it out of the park with this console after the Wii U's failure, just like came out with a console that everybody wanted, every, had an amazing launch game, and suddenly everybody was calling for games to be on Switch. And if you were like an indie game, game lucky enough to release in that first year you saw sales Mm -hmm. go through the roof because it was that first like from 2017 to like mid 2018 there was a Mm -hmm. shortage of games to play on the switch everybody was trying to get a switch a lot of people had switches and were looking for games to play on them so like anything that came out on the indie uh on the eShop was just like gonna get checked out um now Mm -hmm. unfortunately there's a glut of games and it's just like impossible for indies to get noticed on the switch or on steam or anything anywhere but back then like if you were in that window you really hit the hit the jackpot so i have a question which is sort of a topic change but Jason, I I have to ask Jason this because Kirk, I already know your answer is no because you were not this kind of person. But Jason, <laughs> did you ever participate in any console war allegiances? I feel like on this podcast, I've explained that I staked my claim <laughs> in Xbox as a teenager. But Jason, were you like hardcore into PlayStation as as a teen? Like, would we have fought each other when if we had known each other? No, I I've never been into PlayStation I, as a teen. When well, around the week time, I was like. But I was never, I, so I was never like a, an online console warrior. I was never into right. that. But personally, I was like, oh, I like the PS2, but now I'm all in for the Nintendo Wii. Like, I remember switching. I just switched a lot. So, like, I started with mm-hmm. NES, Super Nintendo, then got the PS1 as my main thing, then the PS2 as my main thing, then the Wii is my main thing. So, and then the 360 became my main thing. So I really just sure. rotated a lot. But, like, the only the only company that I really had any sort of emotional attachment to was Nintendo. And that was just because I loved well, and their Square Enix, series. Right. Surely. Right. Right. Sure. Console. Not company, a console maker. I mean. but... Yeah, that's um, not. Yeah, that's but not I was never, I was never like a console warrior. Um, I just never saw the appeal. I, I don't know how I ended up in that world exactly. But like at some point after getting a GameCube and being like, well, what should my other console be in addition to the GameCube? Because I can't get all three. That's ridiculous. And I, I like <laughs> made the decision that I was going to get an Xbox 360 when it came out 
because I liked Halo and I didn't have an Xbox. So I was like, all right, I've, I've made my decision. And I remember reading game magazines and like mm-hmm. going to GameStop and getting into stupid arguments with people about the decision I'd made to get Xbox <laughs> instead of a PS3 and like having very strong opinions about it. And then I remember years later, I dated a guy who was a PlayStation guy and had never owned any Xboxes. And this he is was like super Romeo into and Juliet. Oh, it man. really was. And he, he like tried to sell me on a bunch of PlayStation exclusives and we like uh-huh. played Resistance together, which is like this series of like console yeah, yeah. co-op shooters. And he was like, it's just like Halo, babe. Like it's really just it's like super not the same as Halo. And I, it was it was just like very funny to me to like have this. I don't know if this is even a common experience or not, but that is that is my strong memory of the, the mid 2000s was that mm. tension of like, well, of course, you're going to have a Nintendo console. It's inarguable. They're incredible. You have to have that. But if you're going to get a second console, there is actually a significant difference between the Xbox and the PlayStation lineup, at least in that particular mm-hmm. time period. I feel like now in the current generation, all of those things are still true. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of true again now. Like you you mm-hmm. kind of have to stake your claim. Like you have to decide if you're going to get a, a PS5 or an Xbox Series X. Well, that makes for a good segue into the most recent console launch, which of course we've already talked a lot about. Though I guess it's been a it's been a little longer since these consoles have come out. Mm-hmm. And um, while I guess none of us, no matter, you bought a PS5. So you have actually experienced the like launch purchase, but I don't have any. And Jason, you got yours ahead of time. But it does feel mm-hmm. like the narrative of these console launches has happened. My sense of that narrative is that it's basically just why the fuck is it so hard to get a console? <laughs> yeah, there are aren't enough things? of them. That's the narrative is that more people want one than can actually get one. And it's a real and both mess. Both Sony and Microsoft have been talking about how demand is higher than they had even planned for, and they had planned for a high demand. There's mm-hmm. more gamers than ever, folks. Yeah, well, so that that to me is interesting. So obviously production yeah. is constrained because of yes. the pandemic. But at the same mm-hmm. time, Sony is out here saying, we just had our biggest console launch in history. Yes. And that would mean that it's the biggest console launch ever, because yes. the PS4, mm-hmm. I believe, was before this the biggest console launch ever. So now the PS5 is the biggest console launch ever, which is a really interesting like indicator of trends. And I actually think I remember saying on the show a few weeks ago that I was actually really bullish about these new console launches. And it just feels like like we're in a place where there are more gamers than ever before. There are more people talking about interested in games. The pandemic certainly helped. But even before that, it just felt like gaming had just like really exploded over the past couple of years in, in some really interesting, cool ways. And I think that is kind of the trend of this console launch, which is that like there are more gamers than ever and there are more people playing games than ever and that's mm-hmm. pretty cool I think as someone who has, has cool. followed this industry yeah. since uh, just too bad people can't get the console. <laughs> right it's definitely a silver <laughs> right. lining to the fact that this is yeah. a real mess in terms of wanting a console it's a bummer but like I mean okay so you don't get to play Demon Souls like you can it's not, not a huge yet, deal anyway. if you have to wait a couple we'll of months next no, year, sure. Sure. right <laughs> like it's not like there's a Breath of the Wild caliber game that I feel that I feel really bad that like tens of people won't get to play you know it does feel mm. to me like a, a one dimension of this is the whole scalpers bots dimension that feels mm. like yeah. it's and this is probably like a broader conversation for maybe a different topic but along with the new graphics cards and just the, the sense that any new technology that's hot is gonna suddenly be the target of this whole network of 
almost like unstoppable AI driven like nefarious actors who will just take them all. And I don't know mm-hmm. how accurate that really is. I, I know that some percentage of sales go to those people, but it feels that way, at least to me looking at it, just thinking like I want to get a new graphics card, but I just kind of throw my hands up. and I'm like, I don't have time. I can't go yeah. watch, you know, like or like a Twitch channel that just shows you whether there's stock of new gaming consoles. <laughs> and that feels like a new dimension. Yeah, it's like a game to even get it in the first place. Right. That mm-hmm. feels like a slightly new dimension to me. Yeah, I think it feels worse right now because we cannot go to stores yes. in person. And in some in some cases, you literally can't go because the stores are not actually offering you in-person stock. So mm-hmm. even if you were to go, it's like it doesn't matter. So there's not the experience of even waiting in line in person and like, oh, maybe you get it, maybe you don't. But you mm-hmm. feel like you went somewhere and you did something and there's a certain number of consoles and like you see mm-hmm. them passing them out down the line and it's it's all visible to you. But instead, mm-hmm. we're all just waiting in line virtually and you have no sense of whether or not right. it really works and it feels like maybe a bunch of robots are beating you and also maybe they are and it just feels bad it's this is going to be a weird console launch to look back on i think for, it is, for a it billion is. reasons but i just don't understand why these companies can't start a virtual queue and like you sign up and then you get an email one day yeah like yeah in however many weeks saying hey your pre-order is it does ready. seem like something they could have done. <laughs> yeah, I just don't understand. Didn't. Yeah, wasn't there was like a quote from Phil Spencer saying basically we're we're looking into that <laughs> or like we're looking into mm-hmm. how to improve. I think he was sure. maybe more general. We're looking into how to improve this sure, for the <laughs> next one for the Xbox Series, <laughs> which is an easy thing for him to say. But uh, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. looking into it. That's good. Um, but yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm impressed with the new generation. It's exciting. I'm excited to see what like future years bring. Mm-hmm. I think we're gonna see. I think the legacy of this console launch is really gonna be the pandemic because I think so oh, much yeah. of of like what comes in the months in the months following the launch will be just like delays and s- slow down and supply yeah. issues and, and like our personal memories of playing these games during this time that like can't yes. be separated That's, from yeah, exactly. the launch you know yeah. the one thing that and I, I say this as a person who doesn't have either of these consoles but the thing that seems somewhat defining to me about this launch is that actually these consoles more than past console launches will play all the games you already have and that, mm-hmm. to me at least, like the fact that I could get a PlayStation 5 and then just immately play most of pretty much every PS4 game that I own. And like continue your saves easily. Exactly. It's, like they're just going to be right nice. there. That's mm-hmm. pretty cool. And that feels a little bit different where in the past when a console launched, it was like, okay, what games are there that I can play on this thing? Right. And you're sitting there playing Killzone Shadowfall, even though it's like <laughs> kind of a mediocre game. And you're like, well, this yep. is what I got. Now it's and you have like, to hold well, on to all your old consoles, even while they're collecting dust, just in case you want to play an old right. game. And where now it's like, really oh, new game plus and God of War, like never really got back to that. Or like, oh, I'm going to mm-hmm. go replay Bloodborne for the eighth time, even though it doesn't look yep. any better on PS5. So like <laughs> that does strike me as in terms of launch lineups, like that's kind of a part of this launch lineup that hasn't existed before. Oh, yeah. It also feels like this more than any other console launch is very much like the inevitability of internet on these things. Like mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. things, so many so many functions on these consoles are just impossible with, without internet that it, essentially it feels like they're, they're living the vision of the ex- original Xbox One map back mm-hmm. in the day, back when it was first announced, where it's yeah. like it has to be connected to the internet. I mean, these consoles don't technically have to be the connect. connect connected to the internet but like really they do if you want well, to do anything do. they like have to you're... keep on connecting to it frequently to work so mm-hmm. or yeah i mean you gotta get way. the patches if you want xbox game yep. pass if you want your ps plus downloads whatever like you're basically mm-hmm. getting internet consoles now so that feels like another power like important component of of the legacy of this this generation of launches yeah seven years later we are living in microsoft's future we sure are <laughs> um, well that's uh there's probably going to be many more console launches in the future but that's where we're at right now uh why don't we take a 
take a break and then we will be back with one more thing. Does our podcast deep dive into the weirdest Wikipedia pages we can find? Yes. Do we learn about scam artists, remote islands, horrible mascots, beautiful diseases, and mythical monsters? Yes, 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 absolutely, and yes. Do we retain any of this knowledge? Eh, probably not. I'm Emily Heller. I'm Lisa Hannawalt. We make art and comedy and TV shows and also the podcast Baby Geniuses. For the past eight years, we've been trying to learn new things about the world and each other every episode. But let's be honest, this podcast is mostly about two friends hanging out, shooting the breeze, and making each other laugh. We're horny, we like gardening and horses, and we get real stupid on here. But like, in a smart way. Yeah. Join us every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, tell us something we don't know. The Beef and Dairy Network is a multi-award-winning comedy podcast here on Maximum Fun, and I would recommend you listen to it. But don't just take it from me. What do the listeners have to say? I would rather stick a corkscrew inside my ear, twist it around, and pull out my ear canal like a cork than listen to your stupid podcast ever again. Please stop contacting me. Hell would freeze over before I recommended this podcast, The Beef and Dairy Network, to anyone not in a million years actually scratch that um make it a billion years no how long's infinity that's the beef and dairy network podcast available at maximumfun.org and at all good and some bad podcast platforms disgusting and we are back just in time for one more thing jason what's your one more thing one more thing. So, first of all, just um, to follow up on a quick thing from last week, um, I have been replaying the game 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim, and mm-hmm. I've gotten a good chunk into it and uh, have many, many thoughts, but I don't want to talk about it mm. until I've finished it. Okay. Um, okay. But I will say that last week I was talking about how I bounced off of it when I first played it. I replayed it. I wrote down all the characters' names and <laughs> got way way more into it nice. now that I can keep track Doesn't of it. Doesn't surprise me based on what I know about it. It really yes. seems like your shit. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. I'm, yeah. I'm really into it now. Talk more about that in the future. For now, I want to talk about a movie that I watched the other night. Um, uh, I think it was Thanksgiving or right after Thanksgiving. It's called A Futile and Stupid Gesture. This is on Netflix. Came out in 2018. And I really, really enjoyed it it's a movie about the national lampoon and the person who founded it the Mm. the humor magazine um and he has a fascinating story uh that is really worth watching it's he's played by will forte um and there are a ton of other people that you have heard of in this movie playing all sorts of roles um we see we wind up seeing like all of this like golden age comedy 70s and 80s people all from bill murray to chevy chase to uh to gilda ratner and like all these uh, everyone else you've you've seen in jim Jim Belushi, John Belushi, um, who you've seen in like these 70s, 80s movies, Caddyshack, um, uh, Animal House, because those were also directed by this guy who founded the National Lampoon. Anyway, Lampoon it's a movies. great story. Yes, it's a great story. Um, really worth watching. There's one thing that is particularly hilarious. So you guys have both seen Community, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you know, you know some of the backstory between Chevy Chase and Joel McHale on Community. How Chevy Chase would constantly fight with Joel McHale yeah. and other members of the cast. Apparently, yes. there were physical altercations between Joel McHale well, and I Chevy Chase. That. I knew they all didn't like him. Yes, but. they all didn't like him. He would like fight with them. He would complain that shoots were taking too long and like going through the night or whatever. Like he would just be um, a, a disaster on set to the point where Dan Harmon like publicly called him out multiple yeah, the, times. Like the, yelled the at him. The wide rumor is that he is a huge, a very very talented massive dick yes yeah it's been corroborated by many yes (laughs) so 
in this movie, the younger version of Chevy Chase is played by Joel McHale, which is the oh, funniest thing. Really? <laughs> and I, I didn't know this until I watched the movie, and I was like, no way. That oh, is so funny. That is funny. Um, that so like I did a lawsuit some waiting to happen. <laughs> so I did, I did some research afterwards, and uh-huh. apparently Joel McHale said in an interview that he called up Chevy Chase mm-hmm. and said, hey, I'm going to play you. I'm going to do this role. And Chevy Chase like gave him his blessing, sort of. Mm-hmm. It was more okay. along it was more like Chevy Chase. So Chevy Chase was actually really close friends with the guy who's being commemorated in this movie, the National Lampoon founder. Um, mm-hmm. I won't say what happened to him, but he has a tragic story. So Chevy Chase was actually really happy to see this guy like get his due in the public sphere. So he was he was kind of cool with that, and so he was cool with Joel McHale playing him. And Joel McHale actually does a really good Chevy Chase. Like he doesn't play him in like a shitty way. Well, he does probably know the guy yeah. really well. Yeah, he has so. lots of drama. He does, but also, but but the thing is, he plays him as like the young Chevy Chase that you might remember right. from like the 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 um, mm-hmm. vacation yeah, movie, Christmas uh, Vacation, Fletch, yeah, or like yeah, Christmas of Va- course. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so yeah, it's really cool and really really good movie. Nice. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Maddie, what's your one more thing? Uh, mine is that I played Fuser, which is a video game by Harmonix that I mentioned last week yes. on our Games of Fall episode because it also came out in the November 10th to 12th window when almost every video game of fall came out. And it is not, it's not a next gen video game. No. And I, I feel like it got kind of forgotten. But it's a weird game and a cool game. And I don't know if I'm going to continue to play it. And mm. I will now explain why okay. that <laughs> is. <laughs> so I played a game called DJ Hero back in 2009. Yes. And I, I enjoyed it a well. lot. It was fun. And this game is the game that everyone is going to compare to Fuser, and it is a very deserved comparison because both of these games let you play as a DJ, and they're rhythm games, and you're mixing mashups, and it is kind of awkward in both video games for different reasons. So DJ Hero is actually not a harmonics game. It's an Activision game. This is back in the like Guitar Hero versus Rock Band era, like, you know, mid to late 2000s, early 2010s before harmonics uh, did not do anything quite as successful financially as Rock Band for several years. (laughs) And then Mm -hmm. we're in the present day. Um, it It was in that time period. And DJ Hero included a lot of really cool mashups. This is like... I would say the period of time when mashups were extremely cool on the internet, just the idea of mashing two songs together. It's not like it's a new concept, yes. but in 2009, it was like peak awesome to do this. Right. Like just well, it was like a having... little like post Glee. I feel like Glee yeah, was po- like the heyday of I the mashup. It, yeah. They were all about mashups on Glee. It was a little earlier, but same period. Yeah, Glee was like corporate mashup culture. Like they, they had fully gone mainstream right. by the time Glee was cool, but this was like right before that. And I feel like it was like you know, girl talk, party band, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like bands that people were sharing on the internet and being like, oh, let's listen to this cool mashup artist. That was, that was how I remember DJ Hero being. But in DJ Hero, you cannot make your own mashups. You're just playing along with mashups that they made for you. And you can't really iterate on them that much. That was the big downfall of that. So a decade later, Infuser, that is the precise problem that Harmonix has tried to solve. You are making your own mashups in this game. You... <laughs> are given a drum track, a bass track, a like some type of treble track, be it like a horn section or keyboard section or a guitar section. And then you're given the vocal track and you have those separated tracks for a ton of popular songs from various, mostly the past 20 years. But you know, there's also some seventies and eighties hits in there as well. And you can mash all of those songs up together and get points based on 
how many different kinds of tracks you use because that is the only scoring system that the game can come up with in order to figure out how to tell you whether or not you're doing a good job. And that's mm. actually a pretty big problem because you can make a mix that sounds fucking terrible yeah, I was gonna say. and get five <laughs> stars on it because you are obeying the letter of the law. Like you are right. technically including whatever effects you need to include or however many parts you need to include and you're switching tracks as many times as you need to, but it sounds like garbage. And you, I would say the difficult thing about Fuser is to try to obey the directives that it's giving you and actually make a song that sounds really good. Huh. And so that's what I've been trying to do. And sometimes it works and it sounds amazing. And I'm like, oh, this is the greatest game ever. And it really feels like I'm performing music. And I, I miss performing electronic music for a live crowd. And every now and then it gives me that brief whisper of a hint of a sensation of what that feels like, <laughs> but not the real thing. But it like reminds sure. me just a little bit and gives me that, that, that flash of serotonin in my brain. But then I feel bad again because actually creating and mixing music in this game is hard in stupid ways sometimes and it's like not quite enough like making music in real life to be satisfying and the more I played it the more I was like I should be practicing piano right now <laughs> like I should turn off this video game and I should go plug in my mini pad and just write some music because I don't want to do a worse version of that in this video game and that might actually be what harmonics wants me to do like they, it might be that they would like to turn off <laughs> they the don't want you to play their game go record <laughs> yeah, like, go an electronic music. music like i i feel like that's always kind of the spirit of a harmonics game though is to like give you that flash of serotonin that you get when you kind of feel like a rock star or a dj or an electronica master whatever you want to call it and then be inspired to go make mm -hmm. your own music like every harmonics staffer i've ever met has always said like that's always their secret goal is like inspire people to become musicians mm -hmm. but I don't know. It's 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 just weird to have that experience with a game that I'm like, oh, it's so close to being good too. Like, there's a lot of cool ideas there. It just mm. doesn't. Yeah. Why? Quite so there's land a, no way to play where like other people are rating it because that's the only way I would think of that. Like, well, you can't. You could. I could just become a Twitch streamer. I could just Twitch <laughs> stream <laughs> sure. my games and be like, you guys rate it. You guys let me know what you think of my mixes. But I mean, I could go on and on. There's a lot of other things about the way that mixing is set up in this game that make it not as satisfying as making songs in real life that it. it's just a little bit uh fiddly at, at parts like it they kind of have a midi pad like a version of a midi pad where you can design drum loops in the game but it's not nearly as good as actually using ableton and designing drum loops is in real life and if you know how to do that which i do then you're playing this weird wonky version of making a drum loop in this video game and you're like this kind of sucks but i get mm -hmm. how they're trying to show somebody what, what it would be like if you wanted to design a drum loop from scratch and you never did that before but mostly i'm just doing it and i'm thinking to myself i should go design a drum loop you know what i mean oh so, yeah i have this struggle with music games all the time like where it feels like you're using an le version of your software and you're like yeah. why am i doing this like i own <laughs> professional <laughs> software to do this and i know how to use it yeah, yeah but if you don't then you would probably feel pretty differently about this exactly game. like it can be fun it sounds like it's not a great instructor at making a good mashup which is sort of an issue because at least these games can teach you yeah sometimes. it can't really be i mean it can't be it, it also uses a lot of uh, tune correction, like auto-tune correction on making sure that the songs will always go together, 
but it's not entirely clear to me how it decides which key to pick. I think it's like the mm. first one of whichever track you choose. It'll mm. correct for that according to the next one you put in. But sometimes I'd be like, well, that's not the one I want to correct for. And right. you can sort of control some of that as you unlock more and more tools over the course of playing the game. But it's just, it's not quite meant for that. It, it's like a, a shoddy way to do something that actual mixing software will allow you to do in a more complex and nuanced way and also you would never create drum loops in the middle of a live concert you would create them ahead of time just gotta add some high part of over this here. game is like you doing that and being like oh i just gotta quickly create like a new baseline for this thing and like throw right, it together right. and like that's not anything anyone would do i don't know it's it's really that's almost funny. there i i might beat it just so that i can write some more about it because it's an interesting game but I'm also kind of like, I should just go record some music. I don't know. What about you, Kirk? What are you playing? Um, I played a bunch of Immortals Phoenix Rising, the new Ubisoft open world game. Yet another Ubisoft open world game. Hard um, to imagine. Yeah. And I really like this game. I really like it. That's kind of my short take is I think it's really fun and I'm having a great mm-hmm. time playing it. I'm actually like enjoying it. I'm finding myself more drawn to it than either Watch Dogs or AC Valhalla for different reasons. I mean, uh-huh. I've played like 50 hours of AC Valhalla and I'm just at that point. I think at the point that you maybe were at <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, Jason, yeah. where you were just saying, boy, this game sure is long. You really mm-hmm. just reach a point in that game where it's like, wow, it's good. It's great. I want to know what happens, but holy shit, it's long. And um, What are you playing Phoenix Rising on? Uh, PC. So I have it. They, uh, Ubisoft sent me codes on PC and Switch. So uh, I'm actually able to go back and forth between the two versions with cross save, which is nice. If I that were traveling, nice. I would do that. But I would say the Switch version is pretty nowhere near as nice looking or good playing as the PC or I would imagine like current the new console version, which like runs mm-hmm. at 60 frames per second and looks really good. Yeah, the controls are really busted on the Switch version and not busted. It's just really hard to play on the Switch because the controls feel so off. Yeah, so this it strikes me as one where this is a Switch port that is not this is not a game meant for Switch really. Like no. it's it's fine on Switch and I would play it on the go, but it is a beautiful looking like really high res open world Ubisoft game that is like a full mm-hmm. game that this looks and runs great on PC for me anyways. Yeah, but you'd think it would run on the Switch well because it's Breath of the Wild with the new skin. <laughs> no, but that's I think that's the mistake is that it is not Breath of the Wild. It's actually Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Like you have to think of it as more. It's like a big Same ass team. Ubisoft. Sure. It's not designed for the yeah. Switch. It's like sure, but I mean, but in terms of the actual game, it's like gameplay. It is Breath of the Wild, it, like unabashedly. Well, no, but it isn't. It isn't. That's an oversimplification. So this game is actually a perfect hybrid of Assassin's Creed Odyssey and Breath of the Wild. Um, it borrows shamelessly from Breath of the Wild in many respects, but it is also Assassin's Creed Odyssey through and through. You can definitely see that the same team worked on it. So this was developed primarily by Ubisoft Quebec, who made AC Odyssey and before that Syndicate, two of my beloved multi-protagonist Assassin's. Creed games. Um, this game is set in uh, on a fantasy island that is basically all of Greek mythology. So this is yet another game featuring Prometheus and Zeus and and all of the Hephaestus whatever. Yeah, and all, all, the, all the your faves. You know them all from Hades. So it's yet another game where, where <laughs> yeah, from Hades, not yeah, not well, from that's where ancient they Greece. Originated. They're from Hades. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, uh, so it's it's very fresh in my mind having just played that game, and uh, it's it's really cool. It plays a lot like 
AC Odyssey in terms of the combat, in terms of getting around, but then it very heavily borrows from Breath of the Wild in terms of the world design, the puzzles, the overall structure of the game. You go into these little dungeons, you solve physics puzzles, you have a thing that lets you levitate objects just like the magnet in the Breath magnet, of the Wild. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Things are structured, the map works similarly, you drop little colored pins on the map and then go around to them. And mostly, my main take on this game, and I've probably played like 10 hours of it, is just I'm really liking it because it's nice to play a game that's so video gamey, where each it's just a million cool little interesting challenges that are really clearly laid out for you and color coded and broken into categories, and then you just go and do them. So there will be a little you know tile shifting puzzle, and then there will be a sort of physics puzzle where you have to get a ball across a thing, and then you'll go into like the equivalent of a shrine puzzle from Breath of the Wild, and you'll have to get the optional chest, which can be really challenging. Some of these have been really tough. Um, you get a set of wings, you know, um, Icarus's wings that let you glide around and then you upgrade them with your stamina. You have to use stamina to climb around, which is a significant difference from AC Odyssey, where having played so much um, Valhalla, you can just climb on everything. It's mm-hmm. I really prefer when it's limited, when you can't just swim anywhere or climb anywhere and the world itself becomes so much more of a puzzle and so much more interesting mm-hmm. because you have to be like, well, I really want to get to the top of that mountain, but I'm not supposed to do it yet. There are you know early areas where you're not supposed to go until it's later in the game you're supposed to come back but i'm like no i'm getting to the top of that mountain so i'm like chugging stamina potions and doing all this weird stuff to get around and i love that like i just find that so engaging and this game has that so i'm finding that all really cool it's also a very charming game this game the lead writer is jeffrey yohalem who wrote child of light and was the lead writer in far cry 3 he's a very playful writer um, it's kind of like dorky in a way that I like. I don't corn mean ball. that yeah, as about it. It's kind of cornball, um, but it's really it's really cute. It's primarily narrated. It's like an incons- uh, what's unreliable narrator um, between Prometheus and Zeus. So Zeus is like interrogating Prometheus. Prometheus is actually voiced by the same actor. I'm 90 percent sure this is just my ears, but who played Adam Jensen in the Deus Ex games, and he's great. Okay, and so it's like <laughs> I just recognize that guy's voice. He was in I think an episode of The Expanse, that TV show, and I was like, it's Adam Jensen. Like every time I hear him talk, <laughs> I just know it's him. Um, Bing! Kirk from the future here as I edit this episode just to give credit where it is due. The actor's name is Elias Tefexis. He is a Greek-Canadian actor, which makes it pretty cool that he got to play Prometheus in this game about the Greek pantheon. He's a great actor with a great gruff voice, and I do really like his work. He turns up all over the place, and I always seem to recognize him more than most voice actors. Okay, back to past Kirk. Take it away, man. Bing! But anyways, uh, it's so it's like a dialogue that they're having while you're playing. They're arguing, and then you know sometimes Zeus will just be like, "Oh my God, come on!" There's actually a really funny. Well, Prometheus bit. is telling the story of Phoenix, and right? And Zeus is providing color game. commentary, and your character Phoenix is just kind of this random goon who then becomes a great hero at the time of need to like rescue all the gods. So then, of course, you go and I just did a whole quest line with um, Aphrodite and like talk to Aphrodite, and you you have to go interact with all the gods. But it's funny. There's a thing at the very beginning actually where you play the two tutorial like island area and then you get off of that and the title card comes up and it was the thing we were talking about the other week in um, Valhalla (laughs) where it comes up after five hours but then when that happens Zeus is like are you serious this is only the beginning of the story (laughs) and he like comments on it when it's happening so it's that it's that kind of a script like it's very jokey the cutscenes have a kind of animated movie I saw someone describe it as like DreamWorks energy which is 
feels a little uncharitable because it's it's a little silly like that but generally i'm actually finding it really winning there are some really nice scenes where just characters are telling phoenix a story these like cool montages that are just edited and told with this really deft touch and i'm finding it just really charming and it lacks breath of the wild's mystery it's not a game where you know, what drew me in about Breath of the Wild wasn't just the great puzzles and everything. It's the fact that you never know what's going to happen in that game. And it's so mysterious. And it's just, I remember going to the top of that snowy mountain where that dragon is and just being like, what is happening? I don't understand mm-hmm. any of this. This is so <laughs> cool. This is the coolest thing I've that maze, ever seen. Yeah, like yeah. finding one of those mazes. There's yeah. this feeling of like foreboding mystery because the world doesn't explain itself to you. This is much more packaged. It's, I don't know whether it's because it's a Ubisoft game, but you could describe it that way as feeling more like a Ubisoft game. It's just much more like, here's where you go to do this. Here's where you go to do that. Here's how you upgrade this. Here's what that does. There isn't that sort of sense of mystery that I love quite a bit. But that's okay that it doesn't have that because it has all the other things that I find really appealing. And I really am enjoying it. Like, I I plan to keep playing it. It's actually, of all the fall games I've played since Hades, it's the one that's I've just been like, that's fun. I'll do that for an hour. Like, when I'm thinking about playing video games at night. So maybe I'm thinking the answer is I just need games that are, like, about the Greek pantheon. <laughs> like that's actually the thing. <laughs> it is kind of a strange yeah. coincidence that there are these two games that are about the Greek pantheon in the mm-hmm. same year. It is. Yeah, well, fun fact about this game, one of the reasons that it's like takes so much from Odyssey is because it was it was greenlit as a fiscal quarter filler and it was meant to come out. I don't know if you guys remember, it was originally announced for the beginning of this year, even though that would have been like just a year of development time from AC Odyssey to that. Um, because it was like Yves Guillemont saying, Hey, we need to fit something here. Let's get this team on something fast. But they got more time, fortunately, and I think it's a better game as a result of that. Yeah, it shows. <laughs> just because there are so many systems, the combat system, the stealth system, just a lot of the animations are taken from Odyssey, just seem to be the same thing. I'd love to see more of that, where it doesn't have to be another Assassin's Creed game. They can just make a game that's like this, that's Assassin's Mm Creed-ish, but also very different in experience when you're playing it and feels more like a Nintendo game. That's so cool. I I would love more games like this. A, A lot of it, it's not a small game by any stretch, but it's not the absurd scope of, like, Valhalla. And that yeah. is sort of nice. It feels like I can finish this. Like, it's I've mm. seen it's, like, about 30 hours long, yeah. which is really long. Like, that's plenty. Love a 30-hour um, game. It does not need to be 80 <laughs> to 100 hours. And um, um, I will say that, like, I do not recommend playing this on Switch handheld, which is what I've been doing. The controls, like I mentioned before, are not great. And also the game just looks very smudgy and not good um i think i would be enjoying it a lot more if i was playing on pc also it's beautiful on pc it's really beautiful looking and i've yeah having played it a bit on switch i was like oh this looks like a switch port of a game Mm -hmm. that was meant to be played in hd with like you know the full thing all right well another one for the books we did it we did it we pulled it off we recorded ourselves (laughs) talking for an hour we launched this episode we did we did it we it was did. a it was a wow. podcast launch cut that out <laughs> <laughs> no i'm keeping it in people got pretend i never said that i people I get go. the good jokes and the, the less good jokes they get them all yes well just like a launch lineup you get the good games and then that's you a get really the, the really less. good point you never know what part of the legacy will endure that joke was the red steel of this <laughs> right exactly you get the zeldas and you get the red steels you do all right i'll see the both of you next week goodbye bye Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. 
Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org slash join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.